This podcast is brought to you by Iman Publishing, Canada's leading independent legal publisher. Welcome to the Lawyer's Lounge, a criminal law-focused podcast. Wherever you are, whenever you are, the Lawyer's Lounge is always open. Come on in. Hey, Lisa told me to tell you this. We are not your lawyer. The Lawyer's Lounge is an entertainment podcast and is not legal advice. Hey everyone, great episode today. We've got Nader Hassan talking about the Sharma decision out of the Ontario Court of Appeal and its implications on mandatory minimum sentences and the availability of conditional sentences. We have a special guest, Sana Halwani, a civil litigator, IP specialist, who has logged we believe the most amount of time in Zoom litigation since the pandemic began. She'll share her insights and tips on how to effectively advocate virtually. And Lisa and I will share our own hacks and insights based on our own experiences uh, litigating in the criminal arena uh, by Zoom. We hope you like the episode. Okay, well, we're very lucky today to be joined by Nader Hassan from Stockwoods. Nader recently was lead counsel along with Steve Aylward in a fantastic decision from the Ontario Court of Appeal, Sharma. And we're lucky to have him here to talk to us today about that. For those of you that don't know Nader, the very few of you, uh, he is a partner at Stockwoods in Toronto who does criminal regulatory and constitutional law, uh, does trial and appellate level work, and is a frequent flyer at the Supreme Court of Canada, uh, has, is an excellent lawyer in Toronto, and I think is a fantastic constitutional litigator. So we're very lucky to have Nader here with us today. Thanks for having me. So Nader, can you just walk us through a brief factual precy of the Sharma case so that our listeners kind of know uh, what it's about? Yeah, of course. My uh, client, uh, Shan Sharma, um, she endured what um, the trial judge described as as the uh, classic constellation of, of gladu factors uh, growing up. Um, she had a difficult childhood. She's, she's biracial uh, of indigenous and ancestry, uh, Ojibwe ancestry to be more specific, and she's a member of the Saugeen First Nation. Uh, growing up at a pretty young age, her, her father was, was deported uh, to Trinidad after being arrested on a charge of murder. Uh, and from that time onward, um, she uh, lived with her grandmother and her mother and her other siblings. She did have a difficult childhood and end up, ended up running away at a very young age and was involved in sex work at a very young age. Um, many challenges she faced during her teenage years, um, but she, she never got in trouble with the law and, and didn't have a criminal record, um, despite the various difficulties she faced. Uh, she ended up having a, a her daughter at, at the age of 17 and was living with her daughter and, and uh, doing well on her own despite her limited means. But then um, when she was around 19 years old, she, she reached a point where she was having trouble making ends meet. And she was uh, two years, so not two years, rather two months behind on rent and she was facing, facing eviction. And her, her then boyfriend at the time said, okay, you know, I, I see you're having some trouble making ends meet. Uh, here's a way for you to make a lot of money. Um, you go to Suriname, pick up this suitcase for me and bring it back. And, uh, um, you know, you'll, you'll be paid for that work. And she knew what she was getting into and, and brought the, 
uh, the suitcase back, which, which of course contained cocaine. She was apprehended at Pearson Airport and immediately made a full-throated confession and pled guilty at a very early opportunity. Here's the problem. Uh, the problem she faced was that she was in so many ways a, a very sympathetic uh, offender for a drug importation offense. She's someone with no criminal record. She was very young at the time. She was a single mother. Um, she faced a lot of systemic discrimination throughout her life. And then there were, in addition to that, the Gladys sentencing principles that were supposed to, uh, supposed to help her in a situation precisely like this. Um, so, but there was a mandatory minimum, uh, which, which counsel challenged in the court below and which Justice uh, Casey Hill struck down on Section 12. But then the other problem was that there was this, this Safe Streets and Communities Act that was passed during the Harper years, which made it impossible, it made it prohibited to get uh, a conditional sentence for drug importation offenses. And, and so um, Ms. Sharma at the trial level challenged the, uh, these limitations on the availability of, of conditional sentences on section 15 and section seven grounds and, and Justice Hill uh, rejected that, that argument. So that's what the appeal was about. Our, our mandate here was to, to argue before the Court of Appeal that uh, Justice Hill, uh, despite his, his wisdom, erred in that respect. And in fact, these conditional sentence uh, uh, limitations um, under the Safe Streets and Communities Act were, were uh, constitutionally infirm under Section 7 and Section 15 of the Charter. Section 15 is not that commonly used in the criminal context. Uh, some might say underutilized, some say that's appropriate. You know, what, what, I know that it was advanced the first time at trial, but what motivated you to pursue striking down this, this section under Section 15 in particular? Yeah, I, Lisa, you make a good point. I mean, there, there like you, uh, I had the sense that for a long time, Section 15 had sort of laid dormant um, when it came to the criminal law. There had been various challenges over the years uh, to, you know, to mandatory minimum laws as well on Section 15 uh, grounds, and they didn't seem to go anywhere. Um, and what, what I think we were finding, though, in cases like Noor, in cases like Safarzadeh, Mercalli, um, is that even though the court isn't relying on Section 15 to strike down legislation, they're doing it under Section 7 of the Charter or they're doing it under Section 12 of the Charter, o oftentimes they are incorporating equality law principles to inform the principles of fundamental justice or, or to inform the Section 12 analysis. I mean, our our reasonable hypotheticals under under Section 12 invariably involve a person who is from a mm -hmm. equity-seeking group. So it's it's not as if Section 15 ideas have been dead. It's just that that provision of the Charter has lain dormant um, uh, as a matter of of criminal law constitutional challenges. Uh, but just because it's been laid dormant for so long, it, it, you know, doesn't doesn't mean that's right. And so, you know, this case was very much about, in, in terms of some some other goals that counsel and interveners had in a case like this one, it was in 
in large part to try to resurrect Section 15 as a standalone um, means by which to advance equality arguments uh, in criminal law constitutional challenges. And of course, there have been some of those recent cases at the Supreme Court of Canada, like Capitat, uh, which the Court of Appeal relied on here, and the Quebec pay equity cases that seem to really, really um, move the needle on the Section 15 framework and analysis that I think led some of us to think, hey, maybe now is the time to try uh, and take another hard look at seeing if we can make Section 15 work in these criminal law constitutional challenges. Right. I mean, there are lots of bright lights in this decision, so it's hard to pick, you know, pick what the highlights are. But one thing that I thought that might have broad application was Justice Feldman disagreeing with Justice Hill about what what kind of record is necessary to substantiate a Section 15 argument. And I, I mean, I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about that, but I was really happy to see her taking the position she did about what, you know, what is necessary and what's not necessary to be able to demonstrate, you know, a claim. Yeah, I mean, I, I think... The way that Justice Hill had conceived of, you know, what you needed the empirical record to show, uh, I, I think was is inconsistent with the way the the criminal law, sorry, the, the law in Section 15 has has really been going. Um, I think on Justice Feldman's reasoning, if um, this law, if the Safe Streets and Communities Act, undermined substantive equality for just one person uh, that would be enough in terms of an evidentiary record whereas whereas justice hill seemed to take the view that in order to, to make out a section 15 claim you'd have to show that uh indigenous women were disproportionately more likely to be charged with a drug importing offense and therefore disproportionately more likely to be um, uh, harmed by dint of this law as compared to the, the rest of the population. And, and that's not what, what Section 15 requires, and, and certainly not under the law of Section 15 as it exists today. Uh, and I think Justice Feldman makes that, makes that very clear. I mean, all that being said, though, I think, I think the record here was pretty good, and I think that was what differentiated this case from some of the other Section 15 challenges. There was a quite a wealth of, of um, social science expert evidence that was led in the court below. Uh, Dr. Murdoka testified at length and provided a, a very lengthy um, expert report that described the impact that the unavailability of conditional sentences was having uh, on Indigenous women. And indeed, there were, as part of that evidence, there were case studies that were uh, brought to the attention of the court in which it was clear based on one particular study that in, in the 31 cases where Indigenous women had been given conditional sentences, if though the Safe Streets and Communities Act had been in effect at that time that they went to sentencing, 29 of the 30, those 31 cases would not have uh, received uh, conditional sentences. So, so there was compelling um, evidence on the record in terms of uh, disparate and disproportionate impacts. But I thought you're right. It was it was refreshing to see uh, Justice Feldman conclude that you, you don't actually need uh, that kind of an evidentiary record uh, when what you're seeking to do is to explain that um, the 
law that's been impugned undermines a remedial framework that is necessary to undo uh, systemic discrimination. And, and that's really the heart of the Section 15 analysis. Now, Nader, the, the uh, attention um, around Section 15 has been uh, uh, exciting and, and observers and, and lawyers are, are very interested in the 15 analysis. Um, but there's also some exciting developments on the seven. Can you talk to us about the section seven analysis here? Yeah, absolutely. Ultimately, the court concluded that the uh, impugned provisions also violated section seven uh, of the charter on grounds that these, these laws were overbroad, um, meaning that uh, there was a disconnect between the, the means that parliament chose and the, the, the uh, the effects it, it ultimately had, and, and that Parliament is capturing uh, more uh, offenders and, and more offenses than, than it uh, had intended to capture. The goal of this legislation, and, and the parliamentary record makes it really clear, that the goal of Parliament was to ensure that those convicted of, of more serious offenses didn't get a conditional sentence. That was the goal. and, and the, the government at the time, um, through various speeches that are reproduced and answered, made that very, very clear. Um, but the means chosen were an extremely blunt tool. Um, and what the impugned provisions did is they took conditional sentences off the table for anyone who was convicted of an offense uh, where the maximum sentence was, was uh, 14 years or longer or 10 years or longer in the case of, of uh, drug-related offense. Uh, but as, as, you know, as we all know, as criminal lawyers, the maximum sentence for a given offense is a really imperfect proxy for the seriousness of any given offense. Uh, you know, rarely, if ever, does, does someone get the max when they're convicted of, of an offense. And there's a lot of offenses in the on the on the books in the criminal code and in other federal penal statutes where no one ever gets anything near the max and, and indeed oftentimes you don't even get any jail time you know we were we did a, a tally of some of those those uh, uh offenses that are that carry a 14-year max and they include things like price fixing false advertising deceptive telemarketing, forging a passport, um, possession of counterfeit money. I mean, yeah, these are offenses. They're criminal offenses as, as they should be. But no one goes to jail for 14 years, even though that's the theoretical maximum. So, you know, it's, it's really not the case that the theoretical maximum for a particular offense is a proxy for seriousness of the offense. Uh, all it means is that these are offenses where there's a huge continuum uh, a huge spectrum of, of blameworthiness where you can have someone who's, who's barely committing a criminal offense all the way to someone who does something really serious if there's a number of counts and they've done it over a long period of time. So th that's all that these, these offenses are. They're, they're broad spectrum culpability offenses. They're not necessarily uh, serious offenses. And, and that, that's why there was this disconnect between Parliament's goal and, and the means uh, actually chosen. And, and that's the effect. That's the argument under Section 7 that, that the, uh, the Court of Appeal gave effect to.
you were not, I mean, you had your co-counsel, obviously, in this appeal, but you were not alone in the Court of Appeal. There were some great interveners there with you. What, what was your experience like working with interveners? And, you know, do, do you think that it was helpful to your case? Absolutely helpful. And, and I think in, in some ways it was, it was crucial. Uh, I mean, this, this case came to us um, through an intervener. Um, uh, Aboriginal Legal Services got involved at the trial level. And, and although, you know, Ms. Sharma had counsel, uh, Aboriginal Legal Services, they, they really shepherded the, the constitutional challenge through uh, at the trial level. And, and they, for obvious reasons, they felt like maybe they wouldn't be able to do that at the Court of Appeal, which is, which is why um, they reached out to me to see if I would be willing to, to act for Ms. Sharma, and Ms. Sharma ended up retaining us. Um, and so Aboriginal Legal Services had been involved in a really major way from the beginning. And it was important to have them here at the Court of Appeal uh, for not just because of who they are, but because of the, the they're familiar with the issues here. Um, there was also a, a, a whole slate of, of really talented lawyers and counsel uh, who were involved in this case. Um, Asper Center and LEAF did a joint intervention. Um, and, and then in addition, there, there was Criminal Lawyers Association that had great counsel on as well, and, and a whole, whole host of others um, who got involved. I mean, this, this was a case that cried out um, for interveners because there were a number of issues um, and um, it wasn't immediately obvious to me um, which of our two constitutional arguments, be it Section 7 or Section 15, was going to carry the day. Um, there was a part of me that felt that the Section 7 arguments were going to provide us with our best chance of winning. Uh, only because, not, not because I didn't think the Section 15 arguments were good as a matter of law or, or um, as a matter of, of fairness and common sense, but just because the track record in advancing Section 15 challenges and constitutional cases had been, had been so poor over the years that I, I thought maybe Section 7 um, would, be, would afford us our best chance of success. Um, so, you know, as, as counsel to the accused, you know, you have an obligation to advance the argument that's going to afford your client the best chance of success. But on the other hand, um, someone had to be making the Section 15 argument even if it wasn't going to be us and because it's just so important and someone somewhere had to resurrect section 15 in in when, when it came to the criminal law and, and this was a pretty good record to do it and so um we ended up advancing both the section 7 and section 15 more or less 50 50 uh but you know it was really important because the section 15 argument have, have so many facets and dimensions to them it was really important for us to have a really strong cohort of interveners there who could really own in and really zero in and focus on on the section 15 arguments in the event we were getting the a sign from the panel that they weren't interested in the section 15 stuff we would have to change gears and, and focus exclusively on section seven we didn't want to be in a position where we had to to choose between serving our clients interests and making sure that arguments that need to get made get made 
And so that's why it was so crucial having all those interveners here. And so, uh, Nader, obviously we commend uh, the decision to our listeners. Uh, you ought to grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine and read through the whole thing, including the dissent. Um, but just as a spoiler alert, are you able to give us the bottom line? Where do we stand on mandatory minimum sentences now after this great work on Sharma? So, you know, I hope that the federal government uh, does the right thing and uh, doesn't appeal this decision and instead goes back to the drawing board and and repeals the, the Harper era limits on conditional sentences. But the reality is that on, on conditional sentences and the provisions that, that we challenged here, there's a bit of a split across the country. I, I mean, challenges, uh, identical challenges in Saskatchewan, for example, have failed. And so, um, you know, counsel outside of Ontario, I think, do want to see this case go up to the Supreme Court so that the Supreme Court can hopefully um, make this uh, the law of the land and, and not just Ontario. The dissent, Danielle, you, you, you alluded to, is it's an interesting one. Um, I, it's styled as a dissent. I really think it's a concurrence. And here's why I say that, because what Justice Miller seems to be doing is, is not so much disagreeing with the majority's application of binding precedent, but he's really disagreeing with tape attack, which is Supreme Court of Canada. And if we accept the proposition that the, that the Ontario Court of Appeal is bound by Supreme Court of Canada precedent, um, then, you know, Justice Miller doesn't get to disagree uh, with, with the Supreme Court of Canada and tape attack. Uh, and I don't think, I think he's aware of that. He's a smart judge. But what I think he's really doing in his dissent uh, is, is inviting the Supreme Court of Canada to revisit its, its Section 15 uh, framework. Um, because I think if push come to, came to shove, I think he would acknowledge that um, where the majority goes in light of tape attack is not an unreasonable place for the majority to get to. His quarrel seems to be with the Supreme Court, not with the majority here. And at the at the end of this decision, I mean, we're we're left with a little bit of a. I think you've described it previously as a patchwork uh, of conditional sentence availability. Where, I mean, where do you think we're going with with that for conditional sentences? Is there room for further challenges after Sharma? I mean, what what do you think happens next? Yeah, I I, I think you're right. Um, you know, as as you note, um, under Section seven forty two point one, there's what the Safe Streets and Communities Act did was to carve out a whole bunch of different uh, offenses um, and circumstances under which conditional sentences would no longer be available. We challenged two of those carve-outs, but a bunch of those carve-outs now remain on the books. Uh, and so now we have a little bit of a, of a, of a patchwork, as you describe it, um, because you know we've struck, the Court of Appeal has struck down the provision that says you can't give someone a conditional sentence where the max term of imprisonment is 14 years of life or, or, or 14 years uh, or life. Um, but subsection F is still on the books. And so, and that's the provision that says for these very specific enumerated offenses that aren't caught by provisions A through E, 
uh, you also don't get a conditional sentence. Um, so things like prison breach uh, and criminal harassment, those yeah. are no, no longer, those are still offenses for which you can't get a conditional sentence. But now after Sharma, you can get a conditional sentence for offenses that are seemingly more serious. So I think that that's going to strike uh, some counsel and some accused as unfair uh, as, as it should be. And I think hopefully that is a bit of a roadmap for, for uh, future constitutional challenges if the federal government doesn't do the right thing here and just repeal the whole damn thing. Well, fingers crossed on that. The federal government, if you're listening, repeal the whole damn thing. You heard it here first. Um. <laughs> well, don't you think, don't you think guys that the, the, the time is right, that there, there is in the, the current culture, um, it seems like a growing awareness about over-reliance on the, on incarceration and, um, and it's discriminatory um, history and future if we continue to rely on the model. I, I mean, are, am I alone in fe feeling like, you know, we've hit the right time to advance this and, and keep pushing? I, I think you may be right. I, I think, um, it, you know, I think politicians, they, they're, they operate under the principle that, oh, you can never, you're never going to get anywhere politically. Um, if you're perceived as being soft on crime. But this is not about being soft on crime. This is about compassion. It's about compassion in our criminal justice system. And I think the majority of Canadians can get behind that. And let, let's not remember also that this is a government that, that you know, beats the drum over and over again about how, how principled and how dedicated it is uh, to the goal of reconciliation between, between Canadian sovereignty and, and indigenous peoples. And look, the repeal of mandatory minimums and, and these limits on conditional sentences, that's something that is very much a part of that mission. And indeed, in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report, one of the recommendations was to repeal mandatory minimums and uh, these limits on conditional sentences precisely for that reason. So I look, I think, I think you're right, Danielle, the time Time is now. Yep. No, well, let's hope because I, you know, I don't know. This government does talk a big game on these issues, but we haven't seen a lot of follow through. And I think it would be fantastic to see some big change, some, you know, smart sentencing rather than tough sentencing. So maybe, maybe we'll be so lucky, uh, but we will not keep you on to talk about that endlessly, which I'm sure we all could. Thanks so much for joining us today, Nader. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Crown Prosecutor Jill Whitkin and defense lawyer Daniel Brown offer an extensive examination of the legal processes involved in litigating sexual offenses in the much-awaited Prosecuting and Defending Sexual Offense Cases, second edition. This edition contains new chapters on historical sexual offenses and cross-examination on private records. The text reflects the extensive changes to the criminal code brought upon by bills C-51 and C-75 pertaining to third-party records, other sexual history, and consent. This bestseller is designed to help practitioners focus on the procedural, evidentiary, and strategic elements specific to sexual offense cases. These elements include search issues, children's evidence, cross-examination on private records, and sentencing. Revised forward by Marie Hennen, contributions from Cecilia Hageman, Megan Cunningham, John Way, Adam Weisberg, and Colleen McEwen. 
To learn more and order your copy today, visit emon.ca slash LLP SO2. For our listeners, Emond is offering 10% off. Just visit emond.ca slash LLP SO2 and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. All right, so as the courts have been trying to adapt to the COVID-19 crisis, the one thing on everybody's mind is, you know, what is a virtual trial? How does it work? Does it work? And should we be doing them? But we're very lucky to be joined today by Sana Hawani, a partner at Lensner Slat, who perhaps has logged more time doing virtual hearings than any other litigator in the country, I think, at this point. So uh, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks for inviting me, and it certainly feels like I've logged more hours than anybody in a Zoom trial right now. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us, Sana, why don't you start by telling us how this happened, you know, uh, how it is that you did this, this trial in the spring by, by Zoom in the federal court. Kind of walk us through that. Yeah, sure. So uh, we had a four-week trial uh, scheduled uh, in March of this year. Um, and we started our first week of trial, and then this is a, a patent uh, litigation trial in the federal court, as you mentioned. And we started our first week of trial, and, it, and um, we finished on Thursday, and that was the Thursday where it felt like everything changed, where COVID went from this kind of, you know, kind of, oh, that's a funny thing we need to pay attention to, to, oh, wow, this is a big deal. And we, I started having witnesses, and the other side started having witnesses saying, I don't want to come to a courthouse. Uh, how are we going to do this? So we called the judge on the Friday morning to say, we don't think we can proceed because of COVID. Um, and there was certainly an agreement you know, across the board that that was a good idea not to, not to do that. And so we were adjourned at that point. And these are trials that needed to get done. The federal court is really uh, big on making sure things get to trial in a timely manner. There's a practice direction that says things are supposed to get to trial within two years if possible. Um, and so there wasn't a sort of a, a willingness, and I think rightly so, to just let things, you know, let things go indefinitely. So we uh, ended up in a place where the court suggested that we should be proceeding and we couldn't just let this go indefinitely. And um, over some objection uh, from the defendants, um, the court issued a direction saying, no, we're going to proceed by Zoom. Uh, and that's how the first trial happened, which uh, started back at the end of May. Okay, and, sorry. <laughs> sorry, Lisa, I just, I, I'm de desperate to learn how many weeks was that trial by Zoom? So the, the rest of that trial, and we had another three weeks uh, all by Zoom. Um, we had, uh, uh, I can't even remember the number of witnesses, a lot of witnesses, obviously all, all coming in remotely by Zoom. We also had a number of Francophone witnesses um, because that trial was uh, against uh, Videotron, a Quebec company. And so a number of their witnesses wished to testify in French. Um, and so we had on top of the regular Zoom platform, we had simultaneous translation as well. Um, that we were doing by Zoom. So it lasted uh, three weeks, a large number of expert witnesses, large number of fact witnesses, um, all done. We haven't done closings. Closings are all going to be in the fall, but we completed the, the evidence portion. Gotcha. And so you guys were treading pretty new ground in terms of trying to make this Zoom trial work. What, what kinds of preparation did you do for this? Did you have to draft a protocol for what the rules would be, when you can go to the bathroom, what kind of tech setup you need? What did you guys do and how did you do it? Yeah, we did a lot and it was very collaborative, I have to say, um, as between counsel and, and, and I think that's really important when you're trying to tread this new ground. Um, collaboratively, counsel uh, generated a 
quite detailed uh, virtual trial protocol that was then provided to the judge who added uh, their own uh, additions and gloss. And that actually issued as a direction with a neutral citation in the federal court and is now being used as the model virtual trial protocol. And we've seen, I think there was a superior court judge that recently referenced it as part of um, of, of, of their uh, proceeding. And so um, everything, you have to think kind of through everything and figure out where the problem's gonna be and how are we going to address them. So there were concerns about the formalities of court being missing and making sure that witnesses understood they're still you know, gonna be under oath or under affirmation, that this is a serious matter and making sure they understood what their responsibilities were. So we have a handout for witnesses that's at the back of that virtual trial protocol that we run through effectively with every witness before we start our examinations. There was thinking through what happens if the tech goes bad? What, what's, the, what's the protocol for that? What tech are people expected to have? And so there is an expectation that even the witnesses are going to have a second screen so that they can look at documents. Um, there is, you know, even a, a, a recommendation that you restart your computer every night so that you don't have problems with your computer. I mean, we got to sort of that, that level. We had to think through all of those things collaboratively from a protocol perspective. And then separately, of course, each team in the court had to sort out their own tech in their own space, uh, their own strategy for dealing with things like documents and cross-examination, considerations of whether you screen share or not, you know, in a Zoom trial. Um, how do you handle confidentiality? We had sealing order and we had confidential portions of trial. All of that kind of thing we had to think through both uh, as kind of a, a, a whole team, if you want, with the other side in the court, but then also separately for our own particular setups. And so can you paint a picture for us? You've, you've now, you're, I, know, I know that you're now in your second federal court trial by Zoom and in between you did an appeal uh, as well, since the pandemic started, if we were to walk into um, the Lensner's boardroom, what do we see? What does what does your virtual court look like? Yeah, great, great question. Because I feel like that really helps to crystallize for people what you need to be able to do. So we are using a very large boardroom boardroom at our office for our trial. We are doing that because we have a team of six that are running this trial. Uh, including, you know, associates, partners, and, and our phenomenal law clerk who keeps everybody going. Um, and so you walk in, and we have a large, long boardroom table. Everybody is separated by uh, at least two boardroom chairs, if not three boardroom chairs. We've got hand sanitizer and wipes everywhere. Everybody, or almost everybody, has a second screen and a hardwired network cable so that everybody's well set up in the boardroom. And then, um, you know, to be in the room at the time. And then for the person who has a witness that day, we have a podium set up, like a full, you know, standing podium, where we have a docking station on the podium. They, the podium has an extra little table. There's a second screen on that. There's a podcasting mic on that. We have a separate external webcam that is better than the laptop camera, for example, that I'm using right now. Uh, has better picture quality. We have a ring light set up um, to make us all look beautiful. We've taken art down to make sure that there's sort of a blank wall in the background for us. Um, and, uh, you know, th there's always a thousand bottles of water. My team knows I drink way too much water during the trial. So, <laughs> so there's also that. So that's the basic setup uh, when somebody's actually, um, you know, examining a witness or cross-examining a witness. 
and the person who is defending sits right next to the podium. So when you need to do the switch down, it's very fast. You just sort of grab your laptop and sit down. And, and we have external speakers set up as well so that the whole team can hear what's going on. The one, it's great to have the team in the room together. The one downside of that that we realized very quickly is nobody can hear anybody but the person at the podcasting mic and at the podium you cannot have multiple sound feeds or you have massive feedback. So there were a couple of awkward moments where, you know, two of us happen to be on camera at the same time and the judge might direct a question to the person who can't really turn their mic on. And so we had to sort of work that out a little bit. Um, but but um, yeah, so aside from that, I think that probably paints mostly the picture of our, of our sort of physical setup. That's pretty impressive. Um, <laughs> I'm not. I'm not sure some of my legal aid clients will be able to swing the setup, but I guess. I mean, this is a. This is an ideal type. This is what you could have if you you have the proper resources, and I think that's what we should all be aspiring to and trying to to take parts of and implement in our in our criminal practices, which may we, we may have smaller boardrooms and and less capacity. But I guess I'm just wondering you know what you've learned through this process because the tech part of it i assume now you have it set up and you can reproduce that right like now that it, initially it was a huge amount of work but now that it's done it's basically plug and play i assume for future trials so people out there who hear that and go oh my god i will never be able to get that set up i think you know once you do that first undertaking and we can now steal a bunch of your work by hearing how you did it don't have to worry about reinventing the wheel um, it's not nearly as scary but like what have you learned how has like how has Santa day one of first Zoom trial changed to today? Have you changed any of your practices or you know, what have you learned through this process? Yeah, so I think what I've what I think myself and I think my team members would agree is that Zoom trial is not that different from regular trial. I, I think that's the biggest lesson that you it's it's kind of scary at the beginning. You're we're all worried, we're all worried that the tech isn't gonna work and that the feed isn't gonna be good and that, you know. It's just not going to work as well. Um, but but our, our unanimous consensus at the end, or even a few days into our first trial, was it's actually not that different. Um, you know, you're you're still examining witness. You can still see you know the, the the judge. You can see them very well. You can see the the witness very well. You can see the opposing counsel very well. They can also see you very well, which you are very aware of. So you definitely have to get used to that. Um, you know, not a lot of movement uh, during during a trial where that would be much more noticeable on camera and wouldn't be in a larger courtroom. So so I think that's the biggest takeaway and, and I, I do hear you on it sounds like we've put a you know a ton of thinking and, and, and money into the setup. Um, but you're right that you can take pieces of this very easily. You do not have to have a fancy um, uh, podium. You can have a stack of books or a stand you know a standing desk if you want to be able to stand and have your and have your laptop up. Um, you know, a podcasting mic is great, but most laptops come with a perfectly good microphone and most laptops come with a perfectly good camera as well. And so all of those things are kind of options that we had certainly the benefit of being able to implement them, um, but they're not necessities by any stretch. You do need to have, you know, solid internet connections, probably the one thing that is very hard to do without. Um, so, so I think that that's, uh, those are sort of the, the takeaways for me. And, and certainly we've learned, and I've learned lots of more granular things, you know, about, um, I mentioned it already, you know, do you screen share or not? And kind of thinking through when it's a good idea to do that or not. You know, things like that, we certainly are learning and still learning. How, you know, what do you put up on your screen? Which screen? 
we're also kind of mostly paperless. So I've, I've got an iPad too on the, on the, on the uh, podium that that's where my paper brief would normally be. Right. So trying to figure out where everything goes and what the best way to pull up documents is, those are the sort of really granular things we're still learning how to do better and more efficiently and more effectively. And Santa, you're going to have to take us through that. Like <laughs> I need to know what you had on each screen because it's really important to me to know this. <laughs> so walk us through, there's at least two screens plus your, your iPad. So yeah. you're cross-examining a witness. Tell us exactly what's on what screen. So it, it's different. So let me give you an example. Um, ideally, what you have is on your front screen, um, well, you've got, obviously, you've got your Zoom. And sometimes you have your Zoom plus a document, and that would be your outline, like your, you know, so that you're a, there's more eye contact. So you're not looking down as much, and you can have your notes of your examination, your cross-examination outline next to your Zoom, and you can be looking at the camera the whole time, which means it looks like you're looking at everybody else while referring to your outline. So that, that is one of the setups that we've had. Sometimes the outline just doesn't make sense because you want to be writing on it. And that's where I use it on my iPad and I'll have my outline and my pencil, my Apple pencil kind of going underneath. So that's, that's one option. Then the second screen would be, um, for example, the documents that I'm going to, uh, the main documents. So we've, we've been using a lot of PowerPoint or you know, PDF slides with our expert witnesses. Uh, and so for their examination in chief, we would actually have you know, a, a slide presentation to take them through the evidence. In the federal court, you actually mark expert reports as exhibits, they go in for that way. And so really you're just kind of highlighting evidence as you're going through it in chief. And so it's very useful to use a presentation tool like a slide deck. And so you, you probably would have your main document, whatever that is, the main report or the main slide presentation or whatever on the second screen. Um, that's assuming you're not screen sharing. So uh, actually, although you could also do it that way. So you'd have that. And then the iPad would be the equivalent of all the paper briefs that you would want to have handy. So I've just got a bunch of, of PDF documents open and sort of by tab. So I need to go to that expert report, the first expert report, then the second one, then the responding one, then the reply one. And I also want to have pleadings. And I also want to have, you know, whatever impeachment uh, materials I have. Or, and, and those are the things that I would have the way that you would have your briefs, your paper briefs in court, um, would be on the iPad. I hope that doesn't that isn't uh, too much detail. <laughs> oh, that's exactly the right amount of detail, Donna. Thank you. Have you guys had any issues as you've moved through this that you didn't expect? Um, I, I I I did a prelim last week, two weeks ago, where I had a real issue with internet quality across different council. And we also had some pretty bad, we've been trying to do sort of the criminal courts require you to be partially in the criminal court and partially on Zoom, which means we have the mic, the mic feedback issue. And that took a lot of moving judges into small ante rooms to the courtroom where they would preside from to solve. Uh, you guys seem to be a little more sophisticated than that, but have you had any problems or, or challenges that you didn't expect? Um, I think the main challenges that we've had on the first trial was with respect to the translation. We had some real problems just trying to get it to work. And we did get it to work eventually, but that was just a whole nother kind of layer on top of, um, on top of everything else. The other one that was a little bit surprising is um, that, maybe not surprising, but in the first trial, I had one of our experts was a was a was a fairly um, you know seasoned expert who had done a number of 
of, of uh, trials before, in-person trials. Um, and he commented to us that um, he was shocked and surprised at how tired he was at the end of a Zoom day. And this is a man who would have been uh, examined for multiple days in a row. So full days, 9.30 to 4.30 days on Zoom. And who had done it in court. And so could really give the comparison and say, this Zoom fatigue is like a real thing. I was way more tired at the end of the day uh, than I thought I would be. Um, and so not much you can do about that because most courts are not really willing to uh, shorten the court day, although our, our court and our judge has been very good about making sure we have breaks every hour so that everybody can take their eyes away from the screen at least every hour. Um, but it's probably useful to warn any witness who's going to be up for a long time. I think it's useful to understand that you're probably going to be more tired than you might even expect to be, right, um, for, for, for people. So that was also... Uh, a takeaway for us. And we certainly feel it as well, but I mean, it's trial. So, you know, you have a full day of examination, you're going to feel tired. Um, this is kind of an added layer to that. What do you miss about in-person trials, Sana? Yeah, we all miss the unscripted time and the unscripted moments. The let's solve this quickly in the hallway. Why don't we do this? Well, to do that, you have to call counsel. Right? which you wouldn't have to do in a regular trial. So, and the, the niceties, the handshake at the end, and the, you know, the trying to um, make, uh, include more junior counsel. So more junior counsel are in the room with us, but in a Zoom trial, they're never visible. You don't see them because you only see examining counsel or defending counsel on the screen, basically. And so that whole kind of mentorship and the collegiality that we, I think all of us try to extend to junior counsel on the other side, um, as well as the collegiality with the more senior members, of course, of the team, but that is all lost, right? And I do think it, it's, it's a bit sad, especially for junior counsel, you know, we all get kind of our moment in the spotlight because we're, we're gonna be examining the more senior counsel are, but the, but the juniors don't get as much of that kind of FaceTime, literally, with the, with the judge and the other and the other people on the other side. Um, so that I think has been, certainly we've all missed it. We had a really nice moment at the end of the first trial where uh, the suggestion of actually opposing counsel to make a joint submission to the court to ask that we take a, a, a Zoom picture of everybody who wanted to turn their cameras on. So our you know, law clerks and some of the clients and all of the counsel on both sides and the judge very graciously accepted uh, to waive the whatever the regulation is that says you can't, uh, you can't take uh, pictures of proceedings. And so we had everybody up on the screen and we, we snapped a shot and everybody got to, to, got to have that as kind of a mento of the, the first uh, federal court Zoom trial, which was, which was a very nice moment. Um, but, but those kinds of things, those kinds of moments, um, I think we all miss. That's adorable, uh, first of all. <laughs> No, I, I actually, I mean, I know that a lot is missed not being in the courtroom, but I've actually found that in some ways it can be, you can feel almost more connected to people because you're doing this weird thing together, staring into each other's eyes weirdly all day. Like there's something very intimate about being in someone's face. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I, I've now entirely forgotten what I wanted to ask you, which is incredibly helpful for this. But no, I guess I just want to say for people, people who are out there who are listening to this, you know, certain segments of the bar who are feeling very nervous about doing this for the first time, who are being asked by the court, 
consider getting your client to give you instructions to proceed by Zoom. And they're thinking, I don't want to make a fool of myself. Like, what if I don't know how to do it? You know, what, what advice do you have for them uh, to make them maybe feel a bit more comfortable about this exercise? Yeah, I mean, we all were worried about that, right? We, we certainly were concerned about what, what it would be like and how different it would be. And really, the, the best thing I think I can say is it, it really isn't that different. And, and you need to make sure you have decent tech. You do need to do that. And you need to be comfortable doing that. But if you can get past that, um, it, it's, it's so similar. And, it, and it's like everything else. If you do it once, you realize that it's really not that difficult. It's really not that different. And then the next time, it's, okay, well, I've done it before. So I can just do it again. Um, and we, we do. We don't, none of us know how long this is going to take. None of us know when the courts are going to fully reopen. Even if they do fully reopen, if you've got witnesses who are not here, uh, even if they're in the country, um, you're going to be doing hybrid sort of trials regardless. And so I think it's important for us to all, in whatever way we can, um, maybe not all of us with Yeti podcasting mics, but be able to manage some kind of uh, virtual or Zoom uh, proceedings um, so that we can just keep our, you know, our clients' uh, cases moving and make sure we don't have this insane backlog at the end of the day that will just be a disaster for everybody. So, uh, you know, you got to kind of uh, embrace it and, and take that first step and that will make you feel better. Just like everything else. It's always scary until it's not. That is so helpful, Santa. We really appreciate you coming on and, uh, and telling us kind of what the Cadillac version of a Zoom trial looks like and sounds like. I know I, I'm actually using a Yeti mic right now, and that, that's something that I invested in. And Lisa and I will talk more about um, how, how we've been doing on the criminal side on Zoom. But it, it's, um, first of all, really nice to speak to a civil colleague on the podcast. I think you're our first one, actually. Wow. Well, I'm honored then. <laughs> and she's available for all of your federal court needs, people. <laughs> yes, I am, especially if they have anything to do with intellectual property. <laughs> there you go. You know how to call. Um, thanks so much for taking the time, Santa. Thank you very much. <laughs> have a great one. It's the winner of the 2019 Walter Owen Book Prize. It has been described as an invaluable resource to the entire legal community in Canada by the chair of the Canadian Foundation for Legal Research. Expand your knowledge about Indigenous identity, best practices, courts, and Gladue reports with Indigenous people and the criminal justice system, a practitioner's handbook by Jonathan Rudin. To learn more and order your copy today, visit emon.ca slash indigenous. For our listeners, Emon is offering 10% off. Just visit emon.ca slash indigenous and enter code Lawyers Lounge at checkout. Hey, Danielle. So we were just chatting to Santa about her um, Zoom trials now. And obviously, you know, in listening to this, and I think I said this to Santa, you know, I was reflecting on the fact that I literally don't have, I mean, we actually do have one big boardroom in my office, but anyway, point being, I don't think many of our listeners in the criminal bar have all of the facilities and capabilities that, and frankly, resources that, uh, you know, some of the big firms and, and big litigators like Santa and Lensners have. You've done a criminal trial already. You did probably the first, I think you did the first big criminal trial in Ontario using Zoom. How was your experience different or the same as Santa's? And like, how, what was that like for you? 
was pretty similar. And, and of course, you know, um, I had uh, a client with resources and, and my firm is highly supportive and probably one of the bigger um, criminal firms in, in the city, maybe the country. So uh, I'm in a very privileged position as well. Um, and so a lot of what Santa described in terms of setup is, is similar to what, what I was able to set up here at Hen and Hutchison. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also agree with the comments that she made that there are aspects of the setup that are optional. Um, certainly I think the Hollywood lighting, um, I, I, w- I wish I had thought of it because for sure I would have ordered it on Amazon. Uh, I did not have Hollywood lighting. Um, but I did buy a Yeti microphone, um, Mm -hmm. and I I bought it at the last minute and I did curbside pickup, um, to, to get it at the Staples on the Sunday before the trial began on the Monday. Um, because I just thought that my voice had a tinny quality to it. And I knew that the trial was really going to be a lot of me, uh, yabbering on and on in cross-examination of two witnesses. And so, the last thing I wanted was for anyone to tire at the, the feedback or, um, you know, some technical aspect of my sound, you know, people tire of my voice. <laughs> There's really nothing I could do about that. But I, I, genuine I, hatred of you as a person and nothing <laughs> in an intermediary form. I understand. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I just wanted to put my best foot forward. So I bought the Yeti mic. It's the mic that I'm using right now. And um, I do, I do commend it. I do think it's a worthwhile purchase and it's something that you'll reuse and it comes with a warranty and, and you can share it um, with your colleagues at, at your firm or in your chambers. And so I think it's a worthwhile investment. Um, I used, and I'm just going to go through some of these technical aspects, Lisa, because I do think, you know, it's what people are asking me, uh, about, um, online and over email. And so I'm, I'm just going to kind of run through it. I, at Hedden Hutchison, we have, um, we all have laptops, all have MacBooks that we plug into monitors. So that's how we operate in our practice day to day. And that's, um, how I manage the trial, but I added a, a, another monitor. So mm-hmm. I had my laptop flipped open and two monitors um, going as well. So three screens in total. And I found that to be uh, optimal because I was able to pin the witness, the witness's um, uh, screen right in front of me. So when I was cross-examining, I could look at a full view of the witness, keep my impeachment material on um, my second screen and my third screen could have the gallery of other participants in the trial, which included um, the crown and my trial judge. So I thought that worked really well. I might even next time employ a fourth screen. And really, all I that was just a matter of stealing screens from my colleagues' offices. And so <laughs> I just grabbed them um, and, and hooked them up. And then I had to kind of figure out on my laptop how to arrange them um, so that my mouse could travel seamlessly from left to right, right to left, which was, a, which was my big uh, stumbling block, but I finally figured it out. Um, and the, the technical piece worked really well. We didn't have any glitches, um, which is kind of surprising for a week-long trial. But I think that has to do with um, Justice Lemon putting us through a, a couple of trial runs um, in advance of the trial. Uh, to test everyone's technology, which I think was was very smart. Um, 
and I, and I think also serve the purpose of calm, calming everyone's nerves about, you know, trying to do this thing for the first time. Um, and I sat. So Santa, <laughs> Santa was standing for her um, hearings and I just sat on my ass the whole time. And uh, it didn't really occur to me to stand. Um, and I, I don't, I don't think I would switch it up next time because I am a walker when I cross-examine in court. And I think that I would probably just instinctively begin to do that in a way that would be highly disruptive. <laughs> so, um, so our protocol also said that um, counsel was allowed to sit. So, um, so that's what, that's what I did. And I don't, I don't think it impacted my ability to, to, Think on my feet. I've heard a couple of commenter, commentators say that that would be a reason to stand. I, th I think I was pretty sharp, but you know, I could be wrong. <laughs> well, it worked out for you, as I recall. It did. Yeah. So clearly, whatever you did worked just fine. Um, yeah. I so I've done. I haven't done a trial yet, but I have done an appeal at the court of appeal, and I've done a prelim in the OCJ. Um, and both were very different experiences, very different setups, partially because I'm a little bit of an idiot and I'll tell you why. Um, the appeal, I had a very similar setup to what Santa described and what you're describing. My chambers has awesomely of their own volition decided to turn the smallest boardroom into sort of a, a mini court setup. So they have a giant TV screen that you can hook into. They have a proper podcasting mic. They have... Uh, a webcam up on the TV and they have a, po a podium. So you can actually be standing. And I, the only issue is if you put the podium at what makes sense in terms of you to the television, you're too far away. And so I ended up having this really weird thing where I have this, you know, 60 inch monitor and a podium directly pushed against it. So I'm like staring at a giant close-up of the Court of Appeal judges' faces. So I now know my, my three-judge panel, I'm very intimately familiar with the contours of their faces, <laughs> let me say. Um, and then I also had a separate big uh, screen that's like my usual monitor plus my laptop screen up on the podium. And that, that worked really well. I had the proper Hollywood lights, which was nice. I felt, I felt beautiful. Um, and that was great. Then I had plans to be at a cottage at the time that I had a prelim, and I was planning to drive back to Toronto uh, if I had to. Uh, we, we were very much on the fence about whether or not we'd be able to do it over Zoom or in person. I had done a, another trial the week before, just a pretrial motion that was supposed to be with the judge remote and everybody else in the courtroom, but there were some it ended up working on day two, but on day one, we couldn't get the tech to work and we had to just sort of scrap the first day of our, of our trial. Um, so I was a little bit worried it wouldn't work, but in the end, we got the go ahead to do it by Zoom. Uh, and so I was only about an hour and a half from Toronto. So I thought, you know, I'll, I'll, see, I'll see how this goes. And I did bring down my big monitor, but I was just doing it really on one big monitor with a you know, mouse and keyboard and my little webcam, or like my, my laptop screen microphone off to the side on not particularly good internet. And I have to say, you know, it, it did work. It was fine. So even in this like, sitting in this weird children's chair that I found at this cottage we rented in a bedroom with a white screen behind me, which was like, I told everybody, you know, having fun in my general vicinity. I'm, you may not be able to tell, but I am involved in a serious matter in the court right now <laughs> um, with my idiot friends. Um, you know, it actually was fine. Like it, I had a little bit of bandwidth issue in one of the afternoons, but 
to Santa's point that, you know, it doesn't have to be the, the Cadillac, uh, you know, that was, that was like on the, the edge of being kind of a bad idea on my part, but uh, it was just fine and able to cross the officer and it, it all worked out. So yeah. I think, you know, don't, don't be afraid if you're saying, well, I don't have, <laughs> I don't have all this nice stuff. You know, it, you can make it work with your laptop and another screen. I think you need the other screen though. It's not really, it's not viable on one screen. Yeah. And I think also, you know, you have to kind of reckon internally with the fact that it's not going to be exactly like court. You know, I I wrote about this in the Globe and Mail and I tried to kind of enumerate all the ways it's, it's different from in-person court. And, you know, for sure it's um, not an exact uh, replica. It's not an exact substitute. And you know, I know that there's a lot of reluctance um, or there's some reluctance um, at, at the bench level and the level of the bar to engage with this technology and, and, um, and this process. And I think it kind of made me think about, you know, sometimes when we're trying to give advice to a client on whether they should um, proceed with a resolution or whether they should have a trial, and sometimes a client will make a mis- the mistake in their decision matrix of, of comparing the resolution, you know, the guilty plea to what life was like before they were alleged to have committed a crime, you know? And so they look at all of the collateral impacts of their guilty finding against nothing, <laughs> you know? And it's just a wrong way to make a decision. Um, you know, you're really weighing the consequences of a guilty plea against um, the risks of a trial. So that, that's the kind of correct formulation of, of the choice and the way to kind of proceed through deciding what to do. And we, uh, we tell that to our clients and we kind of usher them through that, that process and ultimately take whatever their instructions are. And here, I feel like a lot of our colleagues are you, doing that false dichotomy. They're deciding between having a Zoom trial and having a trial pre-pandemic, um, which doesn't exist anymore. And so many of us are gonna be faced with the crossroads of a Zoom trial or a trial in in-person court. And the truth is that in-person court looks and feels very different than it did before March 18th or whatever it was. Yeah, I don't know if you've been back, but it, it really is quite different. I mean, I. I was in a I was in this trial, like I mentioned, where our judge asked us to wear the mask as much as possible. And if we got to a point where we couldn't keep wearing them while making submissions or crossing or whatever, we could pull it down over our nose. And if we absolutely had to remove the mask entirely, but it, you know, and we have the plexiglass between us, and it really is, I don't know, I actually find Zoom more comfortable than that environment for court. And I'm sure people's personal preferences will will tip in different directions, but I don't know. There's something very convenient about the Zoom format for the things that I've done so far. They've been very like law heavy, submissions heavy, rather than um, you know, I'm not wielding any weapons in front of judges or physical evidence. I suppose I should say, but you know, I, I've I felt better doing my full day prelim over Zoom, where I could sit comfortably and you know, not wear a mask rather than being in the courtroom with all of the constraints involved and the nerves that come from being in a public environment these days, especially in Toronto, where I know we're sort of, things are getting better for us qua COVID, but it's not perfect yet. So I, I've yeah. actually personally found it better. Um, yeah. 
Sure. Yeah. And look, I mean, everyone's going to have to use their own professional judgment and, you know, seek instructions from their, their client on this issue. But, um, you know, I think, I also think like part of the reluctance um, has to do with the missing emotional piece in a trial. And, um, and certainly I think that's highly relevant in a sentencing hearing, mm-hmm. contested sentencing hearing. But I think, you know, to the extent that these these decisions ought to be made dispassionately <laughs> in any event, you know, I, I think that the, the lack of emotion um, is maybe helpful in a lot of our cases um, to our clients. And I think that that bears some, some consideration. Um, and, you know, I, I also think that it is, uh, it does force one to um, really rely on the substance of their defense. And, um, and it really causes you to strip away some of the style that you might have relied on in the past. And there really isn't a lot of room for um, some of the theatrics yeah. that normally accompany our advocacy. And so it's really tends to be a more stripped down version of what we had done before, but I can't help but think that that's maybe a good sound exercise. It, it was at least for me um, to to not rely on those little bits of um, theater. Yeah, no, I, I get that. I think you feel you feel very exposed, but in a way that if it go if you're if you're prepared, I think it actually feels quite good because you are really. It, it, I mean, at one point when I was doing one of my things, I had a little bit of an internet problem, so I ended up phoning in, and I didn't have this was not particularly consequential part of a cross, so it didn't matter in that context. But part of it ended up being mostly audio, and I realized like I'm you know the only part of me that is contributing right now is the quality of what I'm saying and like how I'm phrasing my questions and my tone with the witness, all of the other sort of things that I like to view as advantages that I have in the courtroom, they don't matter in this format. And it, it is definitely, you know, it can be, you can feel exposed, but I think it is probably good for us as advocates. Um, you mentioned something interesting though, Danielle, and from like an ethics or professionalism perspective, how did you think about without obviously getting into specifics with your with your case but you know how did you think about talking to your client about making this choice and you know did you do you think that people should be thinking about getting specific instructions and what kinds of pros and cons do you talk to the client about yeah. when thinking about you know choosing yeah. to take the fast option that will be in this sort of you know newfangled format rather than waiting for the classic you know everybody in the courtroom moment yeah well, I, I did give advice. I mean, I, I was very clear that I, it was um, my client's choice, um, but I, I did give some advice, but I was very candid, uh, clear, um, and direct about the fact that my advice was based on absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, normally your advice is based on uh, a combination of legal acumen and experience, and here, um, I had very little to base my advice on, um, except um, certain deductions uh, having to do with the specifics of the case um, and, and some instinct. And so uh, I, it was pretty qualified advice. And 
um, and, and really kind of a running through the pros and cons. Um, and of course I consulted with my partners. I consulted with senior counsel. Um, and I, you know, to be completely honest, um, I was quite very nervous. I was very nervous about doing this. I knew that we would be the first criminal trial in the province. And I think I subsequently learned that I think we were the first criminal uh, trial in the country um, by Zoom. Um, and so I was very nervous and I was joking quite a bit with colleagues and um, and my spouse that, that it might end up with my being disbarred. So <laughs> I, um, you know, it wasn't without some, uh, at least perceived risks. Yeah. Uh, uh, but you know, I think, I think I, it was a bit of a perfect storm of circumstances. I was comfortable in the end proceeding since I had a very long standing relationship with the client. I had litigated with this crown previously and mm-hmm. she's someone, um, who I know I can trust. And when she says she's going to do something or not do something, I can take her word to the bank. Um, and, uh, and I had previously cross-examined the two witnesses that I knew were going to testify at the trial. So I, I had those factors going for me. And I also, though, you know, I was completely laser focused on the best interests of my client, obviously in the back of my mind, I did have the administration of justice, um, kind of, uh, kind of lingering in the, in the corner there, because I thought that if we could pull it off, that, um, you know, the, the example might be helpful to, um, my colleagues and, and the rest of the system. Yeah. Which it, which it has very much proved to be, I know that, you know, the decision allowing you to do that trial has been circulated pretty widely and people have been relying on it quite a lot. Um, one thing that I think we as criminal lawyers are confronted with more than our colleagues in the civil bar are sort of these, these access to justice issues, these, these disparities of access to the technology that would allow you to participate. I mean, I've done the, the, the appeal didn't matter because the client wasn't going to come anyway. Um, the, the sort of the half that the pretrial motion I did, uh, you know, private client who ended up being present. Um, the, the other matter I did was on legal aid, and you know the client didn't have the technology necessary to have been there on video himself the whole time. Um, and you know I struggled with that, and ultimately because it was a prelim and because. A variety of factors I won't get into, you know, he was happy to actually not be present for that prelim. And yeah. if he wanted to call in, he knew he could, but he chose not to, um, which was fine for, for that forum. But, you know, I have wondered a lot of the things that we've done so far during the pandemic. I've had a number of clients who are, of, you know, don't have the means to you know, have a home computer or things like that or have good internet. And I've ended up having them come into my office on a couple occasions to take advantage of sort of my technology setup. But, you know, there, there are risks inherent in that for us in, in interacting with people like that. So I just, I don't know. I'm, 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 one thing that I'm struggling with is the disparity that I think is likely to result in terms of who will be able to do trials by Zoom, what kinds of trials will go ahead by Zoom, uh, and who gets left behind here. Yep. Um, yeah. You know, I, well, I don't you know, it just like it comes to my mind that you recall kind of at the beginning stages of the pandemic, people wrote kind of batshit opinion pieces about 
the pandemic being the great equalizer, where of course it has not been. And it has only served to exacerbate the chasms in society and, um, and you know, really disproportionately impacted um, the poor um, in our communities. And so um, it, it also stands to reason <clears throat> that this issue is no different. And I, I, I think that they're not obstacles though that can't be overcome. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think that it just has to be resourced properly. And I don't have a ton of faith that, that it will be. Um, but I got to tell you, I have often felt that the victim witness service um, uh, part portion of our ministry um, uh, could do more for um, uh, witnesses um, and accused people. You know, why, if a witness can testify from a, um, a, a, a Wi-Fi connection and a room furnished by victim witness services, why can't an accused person yeah. um, who's, who may be a witness in the proceeding as well? Um, you know, I, I've all, also often wondered why my clients can't be furnished with um, a therapy dog in the same way that um, witnesses are in proceedings. So I, I think we, it, we just need to be creative. And I, look, there, there would be objections, valid ones, to um, marching our clients into, into ministry offices. And so that might not be right in every case. But I, I, I do think that if we're creative and we resource the system appropriately, we can, we can level the playing field so that um, it's not just the, the affluent that get to access justice during the pandemic. No, I think that's right. And, and you know, I, there are other bright lights in terms of access to justice that I think maybe, maybe the trial context is the trickiest one, but, you know, I have clients who have been calling into court or pulling up a phone and, and appearing by video in court. I've been doing edited JPT in Barry that would have been, you know, expensive for a client, but wasn't. Yeah. As I was doing other work, Justice First popped up on my screen. Hello, we did our JPT and, uh, and then we were done. And there was no, you know, no bullshit, no downtime. It was just the thing and then it's done. And for clients who are taking two buses to get to, you know, 2201 Finch Court on time for their 9 a.m. appearance to wait until they get called at 1130. Now it's, you know, I, you know, I say, I'll text you when we're up, but you better be on your phone and you got to call in. And, you know, that's, it's such a better system for a lot of people. So I'm I'm hoping that we can sort of take the good and figure out the bad and and move forward as a system. Yeah, so do I, so do I. And then we're going to have to figure out jury trials, which is (laughs) all other... (laughs) Well, we will certainly come back to that topic, I am sure, at a later date, if and when a jury trial actually happens in the province of Ontario in the year 2020. (laughs) All right. Thanks, Danielle. Thanks, Lisa. Lisa and I would like to thank Dada Hassan and Sana Helwani for joining us on today's episode. The Lawyer's Lounge is produced, engineered, and edited by Alex Ross of Never Sleeps Network. Directed and published by Danan Hawes. And marketing by Jordan Bloom. My name is Paul Emond. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of The Lawyer's Lounge. We at Iman Publishing are committed to providing best-in-class criminal law content, including our award-winning criminal law series, edited by Brian Greenspan and Justice Rondinelli, new initiatives like the Lawyer's Lounge podcast, as well as our Iman exam prep resources and criminal law casebooks for law students. <laughs>